0: turn in our Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. From time to time, we want to remind you of the global reach of our church around the world. And so Mark is our elder that kind of oversees missional outreach locally and globally, and it's an important chance for him to share with you the... Reach that our church does have. And it's also an encouragement to continue to be faithful in giving because as we do, God is doing good things and He multiplies even what a small church like ours can do around the world. So I, I call you to continue to be faithful in giving so that others may know and treasure Jesus. I want to tell you uh, a story, and it's relevant to where we're going today to help sort of prepare you for. Where we're going to be in the text today. I've had a chance now to travel to Africa four different times. I've been in uh, Kenya twice and Ethiopia now twice and in other places as well around the world, second and third world countries, and I've found similar experiences in each of those cultures. Most of those cultures, the people that I've spent time with are not the elites, most of the people that I've spent time with are those who have very little. But one of the interesting sort of similarities that I've found in each of those places is that despite the fact that you're hanging out with people who don't have very much, they always make you feel like they're giving you their very best. And in fact, that's exactly what they do. And this shows up, generally speaking, at mealtime. When I go to Kenya, I travel around the country and teach in different training institutions. And one of the things that happens in those training institutions is guys are coming in from various portions of the world to this training institution and generally speaking from Kenya itself but but occasionally from other countries as well. And what happens very often is those guys just have basically nothing. And so one of the things that we do when we go is we provide some funds so those guys can come and then we also feed them when they come because they don't have enough money to take care of their own food. So it's not like they go down to McDonald's and grab a burger in between sessions. So you provide lodging for them and you provide meals for them. And what's interesting is whenever you're the guest speaker, if you're me typically, what happens is they want you to go first and they give you the biggest plate of food. And it often isn't incredibly great food. It's usually not like a steak or you know asparagus or like carrot cake or whatever. It's usually rice and some kind of lentils. You have the same lunch almost every day in Kenya. But they just give you like this gigantic amount. And so, you know, my day's like halfway done, and they're trying to shove as much food possible into your stomach. And the reason they do that is because they want to show you that you're important to them. And as soon as I finish this story, I'm going to switch off this mic so I don't, so I don't keep cracking. But um, I have, I've experienced this many, many times, and typically because I have to keep teaching the rest of the day, I say, no, no, I don't, I don't want that much, I just want a little bit, and that sort of mildly offends them, so you take a little bit more, but what they're saying to you is that you're important to us, and we want to make sure that you have plenty, even if it's not very great, it, it's the best we have to give you. I experienced this in perhaps the most poignant way ever back in the spring, whenever Whitney and I took Jack and Sam for our first trip to Ethiopia to meet our two new sons. We have um, some neighbors who live right behind us in our neighborhood here, uh, some neighbors who are actually from Ethiopia. They were both born there. They're girls. They have three girls go to school with, with our boys. And so we've become friends with them. And not by any irony, of course, this is by God's providence, God moved some Ethiopians right in behind us so that when we brought our boys from Ethiopia to live here, we would have an opportunity to have some people to help ease the transition, which has been wonderful. They're really, really wonderful people. They don't um, believe the gospel. We're hoping that we will have opportunities to share with them in time to come, but they're just the most kind and gracious neighbors you could imagine. Well, they arranged in our first trip to Ethiopia for us to meet some of their family. And so we were staying in a guest house, and we would visit our children each day. And so they came to pick us up from the guest house. We'd never met them before. They just showed up at the gate. We hopped in their car, drove across the capital of Ethiopia to their home. And when we got there, there was a huge feast prepared. It was right around Easter time. And and Easter time in Ethiopia uh, is this huge, huge deal. They fast for like 50 straight days. I mean, it's an incredibly intense time of religious observation and at the beginning of the meal they have this huge bread it's like it's like that wide and it's like that thick and uh the the head of the family the father or the grandfather puts on a special garment and he stands over this this huge piece of bread they call dabo and they take a knife and they they cut a cross in the bread which symbolizes jesus sacrifice for us and then they break it and they give it to each person in the family well we did that and then you start having the meal and they had seven or eight different dishes and the special coffee ceremony and it was just it was very elaborate well the mother of the family the the matriarch of the family was sitting over in the corner and she would not eat and this is her way of saying that you are our guests and we want to make sure you have enough and just like I experienced in Kenya this lady again and again and again kept walking up to us and making sure we had more and more food It was plate after plate after plate and she was just worried that Whitney was too thin and our boys were too thin. She didn't say that about me, ironically. But she just wanted to make sure that we had all this food and it was more and more and more. And then in between these you know, uh, encouraging times of shoving more food down our gullet, she would go sit down and she would just watch us and, and she would just smile. And it was just this beautiful example of a person who was lavishing her best on us. I think as we read a text like we have in front of us, one that we've been studying now for a few weeks, that's exactly how God views us. Just like my neighbor's sister far away in Ethiopia to total strangers she had never met and will probably never see again was making sure that we were lavished with love, God, in a far greater sense, is postured toward us as his people, as his sons and daughters, as we see in this text, he is postured toward us with a smile that is full of grace and love. And once again today, he wants to heap it on us. He wants to lavish his gracious love upon us. I think even if we intellectually, theologically believe that God is postured toward us in grace, I'm not sure that most of us deep down really believe it and really feel it. But it is my prayer that the Spirit, who we will learn more about in our text for today, would cause these truths to be united by faith in our hearts, that we would believe and feel them to be true, and that you would see your Father in heaven, postured toward you, full of love, And full of grace, once again heaping upon you promise upon promise that you are his beloved child, that he will never forsake you, and he will always, always give you his very best. So let's once again today look together into God's word that we might see his heart toward us. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 11 through 14. of His glory. So I say again, your great and gracious Father, my brothers and sisters, is postured toward you with love and grace, and I ask you to listen well today and to receive these promises by faith. There is a central theme that runs through verses 3-14. through 14. And that is that God has blessed us in Christ. He has made us His own. He has granted us His gracious love that we might enjoy Him and praise Him. You see this in verse 6. He has done all these things for us. He has saved us, to summarize it, to the praise of His glorious grace, verse 6. At the end of verse 12, we hoped in Christ that we might be to the praise of His glory. And again in verse 14, we've been granted the Spirit brought back into communion with God to the praise of His glory. What Paul is saying in these opening verses of his letter to the Ephesians before he ever tells them what they are to do, what Paul is doing is grounding them in the love of God and then revealing why the love of God has been brought to bear upon us, why God has lavished it upon us, why He is postured toward us in grace. God has done this that we might enjoy Him and that we might praise Him. It has been said that we are to enjoy God and glorify Him forever, or perhaps better said, We glorify God best when we enjoy Him the most, and that's what Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 again and again and again keeps coming back to. Paul wanted the Ephesian believers to enjoy God and thereby glorify Him with all that they were worth. If there's anything that I want for us as a people, that I think we collectively want as a people of God, it is that we would enjoy God and thereby glorify Him both now and for eternity. So, the enjoyment of God that results in the praise and worship of God is the central theme that keeps coming back in this opening to Paul's letter. And so, let's begin there today. This is going to be a bit of a run-on sentence that you'll see in the screen in front of you in our outline, but it'll make sense as we go. So this is an incomplete sentence, first of all, it's a fragment. In order that our Father might be praised and treasured, we'll see a bit more in just a few minutes. We see this at the end of verse 12 and at the end of verse 14. Our Father has designed us and designed the world and designed salvation that He might be praised... treasured. This is nothing new. God designed it this way from the beginning. In Isaiah chapter 43, the prophet says, "...I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made." What Isaiah is establishing here is that God made all things, in particular people, His image bearers, for His own glory, to reflect how great He is and to enjoy His greatness. In Psalm 106, verses 7 through 8, Israel is told, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. This recalls the time when Israel was released from bondage in Egypt, and it took them mere days to turn their back on God, to fail to believe and trust him, and yet despite their unbelief, despite their short-sightedness, God saved them anyway. For what purpose? That his great name's sake, that his great power might be known, enjoyed, and praised. Before Samuel goes off the scene and Saul takes over leadership of Israel, Samuel says to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. As we look back at the history of the world, again and again and again, unceasingly, humanity turns from God. God. You might think that after God made a people His special treasure, a treasured nation, that they would cease to do that. They would, they would sense their treasured position. They would, they would believe that they were the central people of God upon whom His blessings were poured out. And they would never turn from Him. They would enjoy Him. They would obey Him. But as we examine the history of Israel, of course, it's anything but that. Again and again and again, Israel turns from God. Samuel full well knew this would happen. It was already happening in Samuel's day. It wasn't wrong for Israel to want a king. In fact, if you look back at the Mosaic Law when it was first given, there was a provision given to have a king. It wasn't wrong to have a king. Samuel's assessment of the people was that they wanted a king for the wrong reasons. They were already sinful, and Samuel foresaw that sinfulness would only continue. Saul himself ended up being a miserable failure. David was a mixed bag. David's son who took over the throne was a horrific failure. The kingdom splits in two, and by the time you get to the prophets, we read from Isaiah just a bit ago, the kingdoms are split still, never to be joined together again. And by and large, over the next hundred years or so, they are all sent out into exile. And even though a remnant comes back by the time you get to the day of Jesus... Still, the people have not turned to God in faithfulness, fidelity, true and loyal worship. They are rebelling against God. But Samuel, in his prophetic voice, says that for the, for the great sake of the name of God, he will not forsake his people, which explains to us why he kept sending prophets. It explains to us, of course, why he carried through on his promise to send his son to the world, As we've already seen in Ephesians chapter 1, God decided this before the foundation of the world to be postured in grace toward his people, Jesus being the primary proof that he would pour out his loyal love upon his rebellious people. So God has saved us in order that his great name might be praised and that we might treasure him. Well, what has he done that we might treasure Him and praise Him? Well, first, in verses 11 through 12, we have been promised an inheritance of rest in Christ. So I began as I did today so that you would see the central idea of our section. The central idea is that you and I, that we collectively would treasure God and give Him praise. But upon what basis should we treasure Him? Upon what basis Should we praise Him? Well, first, we have been promised an inheritance of rest in Christ. Let's read again verses 11 and 12. In Him, this is Christ, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. So, we are to treasure and therefore praise God because of what He's done for us in Christ. We have seen this theme of union with Christ, of being in Christ already in our section, and we will see it again and again as we move throughout the letter. In fact, this is one of the central ideas of all of Paul's writings, that those of us who have trusted Christ who have received His righteousness, who are staking our claim on Him, who are banking on Him, who are trusting Him, who are resting in Him for eternal life. Those of us who have come to that point, we have been vitally united to Christ. We live in union with the second person of the Trinity, with the Son of God. And for Paul, this was... A central idea, and it is a central idea for all of Christianity. We have been reunited to the Godhead through Christ. We have already seen in chapter 1, verse 3, that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As we went through that, we referred to chapter 2, verse 6, That Christ has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has done that for us. The Father has done that for us in Christ. So mysteriously, unfathomably, we have been already reunited to the very life of God through Christ. So in union with Christ, we have been reunited to God. This is an incredibly important theme we will tease out a bit more today as we go on what is this inheritance that paul talks about in verse 11 this inheritance that god through his divine counsel his great purposes ensured would come to pass we find once again that we have been predestined see this in verse 11 we already saw it in verse 5 as we talked about when we first saw that word, that's the idea of, of, of marking something out for your own. It's, it's like surveying a plot of land and saying, this land is mine and I'll put boundaries around it and it will be my possession. That's what God did for us as his people. He put boundaries around us and said, you will be mine. And it wasn't this eeny, meeny, miny, mo" thing. It was God and his great love setting His affections upon us to the point that He would sacrifice His own Son to make us sons and daughters again. And as I said to you as we first went through this idea, this is not meant to engender debate. This is meant to lead people to confidence in the Word of God. And I'm going to have to fix that. (laughs) I'm glad my wife is not in here right now. see if I can get this back up. I forgot to plug my power cord in. I got lucky. Let's, uh, let's go back to where we were. As I was saying, God in His great and gracious sovereignty and providence does not put in front of us these theological ideas, these truths, that we might argue over them and debate over them. God puts these truths in front of us, frankly, again and again, that we might rest in his great and precious promises. So he has marked us off. He has set us apart to himself, not arbitrarily, but because he loves us with all of his heart. And he's done this, as Paul says, according to the counsel of his will, according to his purposes. Paul uses three words here to help us understand just how serious God was about making this come to pass. He has predestined us with purpose. He has predestined us with counsel. He's predestined us according to his will. With great force and with a bit of repetition, Paul is saying that God decided it this way and it would definitely without fail, come to pass. That means that if today you are banking on Christ, you're trusting him, you are resting in him, this was brought about by the divine purposes of God, full well knowing that you would sin, full well knowing that you would deserve wrath, full well knowing that the only way to remedy this was by sacrificing his own son, but God did it anyway. That is how much he loves you. Your father in heaven is postured towards you in love. What more could he have done to prove it? As I am raising now, my third son, third in age, new to my family, He is learning to rest in our care. He is learning that he can trust us. It's hard for him. He was let go by his family when he was five and a half. He has gone through a lot of trauma now over the past year and a half of his life. It's hard for him to trust new people. Skin color doesn't really matter. That's not been a factor. New culture really isn't a factor. It's just the fact that he doesn't really know us yet, and he doesn't fully trust us. And this shows up in disobedience. It shows up in rebellion from time to time. It shows up in various unhealthy ways, usually low level, usually not too bad, but but ways that we have to address. What we have to do whenever we address this behavior is remind him over and over and over again that we are his parents, his family, that we will never, ever let him go, that we are postured both now and tomorrow and next week and when he's 12 and when he's 20, we are postured toward him as his family with love, that he has full rights as a son. And little by little, he's settling into that. But I see in him my own behavior toward God. I see unbelief in him toward me. When I see unbelief in me, his dad, toward my heavenly father. I see doubt that shows up in unhealthy behavior. And I see this in myself as well. But as my son is learning progressively day by day to trust his new father who will never let him go, I still, at the age of 40, am learning to trust my God in heaven who will never let me go. And just like it took great planning for my son Abe to receive a new family and to be brought into a new place, it took great planning and great purpose, great volition to bring about our salvation. And that is exactly what Paul wants us to know. God, with volitional force, with unbreakable power and unceasing love, made sure that you would be his own. And he promised us an inheritance of rest. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Matthew says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. These words rang true for Matthew when he wrote his gospel as he had originally heard them from the Lord Jesus. When Jesus wanted Matthew and the rest of the disciples to know, and wants us to know today, is that as we come to him, we receive the promise of rest. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Hebrews chapter 4, and then we will also spend a bit of time in chapter 11. This inheritance that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 1 is more than possession, We know from Jesus' words to the disciples in John's gospel that He would go to prepare a place for them. I think this has been misunderstood. The original language was that Jesus was going to go give them room. He was going to go make a place in the presence of the Father for the disciples. That has been turned and twisted in a lot of strange ways in Western evangelicalism so that we all start designing our heavenly temple. In the here and now, we all want mansions made of gold with hedges made of gold and sidewalks made of gold and drinking fountains made of gold. And and if we're not careful, what we look forward to is the stuff we get rather than rest with God Himself. I think Hebrews chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 11 helps adjust some of that thinking. In Hebrews chapter 4, we find that in verse 6, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one when every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus offers us rest, And yet, we will not fully realize it until we are with Him for eternity. Look with me, please, in Hebrews 11. Now, faith, verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Look in verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder... Is God. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that there's a sense to which we can find rest in the here and now. There's another sense to the rest that is coming that has not yet been fully realized. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 1 when he speaks of this inheritance. He's speaking about reunion with God. Abraham received the promised land. And though his offspring would eventually leave it, yet they knew temporally and temporarily what rest was. But Abraham and all those who came after him did not know full rest. And as we saw in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says that there is a Sabbath that still awaits us. We have not fully realized it. So what is our inheritance? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. It's not stuff. It's not like we're going to eventually end up in this great celestial cosmic court hearing where the will is read and we all get our part. That's not what it's going to be like. We will all share a part, those of us who have trusted Jesus, those who have been united to Him. After all, What has Jesus done for us if He has not reunited us to the Father? The fact that we are in Christ means that we are already seated in the heavenly places. In a sense, we have already been reunited to God. We've been reconciled to God from our sin. We have been ransomed, redeemed back to God as we saw last week. But we have not yet been fully ransomed. We have not yet fully realized union with God. That is coming. There is coming a day when Jesus will return to earth and He will dwell with us in perfection. And God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit will be with us and among us, binding us together to themselves and to each other for eternity. So, we can say that this is an already, not yet realization. This is an already, not yet promise. Already, those of us who have been united to Christ have been granted the down payment of an inheritance. We'll see more about that in just a moment. But we have not yet fully come into possession of it. As Abraham received partial fulfillment of God's promises to him, he did not realize total fulfillment of those promises until he died and was reunited to God in vital union. So, here's where it is for us today. There's a sense to which we have already been reunited to God. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, but there is a sense to which we have not yet fully realized this But just as God lavished His love upon you, by setting you apart from the foundation of the world by the counsel of His will, He will bring your full salvation to pass. You will fully realize reunion with God. That is your great inheritance. It's not stuff. Your great inheritance is not property. Your great inheritance is that you are We are the people of God. And we get God back. In order that our Father might be praised and treasured, we have been promised an inheritance of rest in Christ. And secondly, verses 13 and 14, we have been reunited to Him in Christ by the Spirit. So here's the logic of the passage. In order that our Father might be praised and treasured, we've been promised an inheritance of rest in Christ. And also... We have been reunited to Him, to God the Father, by Christ and through the Spirit. Verse 13, in Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, with the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His, the Father's glory. Notice that all three persons of the Trinity show up in verses 13 and 14. This means that the God of eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, He, God, because we believe in one God who manifests Himself in three persons, one God, has leveraged His great, unbreakable power and love on your behalf to make you His own. And he's given you his spirit. The third person of the Trinity now dwells within the hearts of those who have been united back to the Father in Christ. This means that already you have been vitally reunited to God. Very little is understood, I think, in evangelicalism about the third person of the Trinity, about the spirit of God. I think sometimes as a counter-reaction to the excesses of extreme Pentecostalism, where there's very little gospel and there's an over-preoccupation with sign gifts, we can completely undermine the person and work of the Spirit. And certainly in our country and all around the world, there is an unhealthy preoccupation on the Spirit doing miraculous things. And that is not to say, as a parenthesis, that the Spirit does not or cannot do miraculous things in the here and now. I believe that He does, and I believe there is great mystery to that. But if we're being honest, in our day and age, in Western and other parts of the world, evangelicalism, we see an unhealthy preoccupation with the work of the Spirit at the expense of the work of Christ, and I'll close the parenthesis there. And I think because of this, sometimes we do not talk about the Holy Spirit and we don't understand Him. The Spirit does many things on our behalf. And if the Spirit indeed is the third person of the Trinity, very God of God, He deserves our understanding and, of course, our affections and worship. In this text, Paul demonstrates the Spirit to be one who has been given to us, to reunite us to God. If the spirit is anything, he is the promise that we belong to God. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here in these verses. If we have heard the word of truth and believed it, there's a sequence there, right? You have to understand the gospel and then you have to embrace it. And if that characterizes you then you have been granted the Spirit. There's a couple of facets of the diamond of the gospel that are showing up here in verse 13. We hear it, and then we embrace it. We believe in Christ. We call this conversion. Conversion is turning from sin and trusting in Christ. And this sealing with the Holy Spirit is similar to what we might call regeneration, another facet of the gospel diamond. This is a simultaneous sort of thing in our experience. But logically, because we cannot believe apart from the work of God, we are born again by the Spirit and granted faith. We will find that later on in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith." This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That means that even the faith that we've been granted comes from God. We've been converted by repenting from sin and turning to Christ, and we have been granted new birth in the Spirit. And not only this, we've been granted the Spirit in an ongoing sense that we might know God and relate to Him and reun- reunited fellowship. And once again, in verses 13 and 14, this is an already not yet thing. We have already been reunited to God by the Spirit. But there is coming a day whenever we will receive the fullness of our inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, as we've already said today, but it bears repeating, holds in front of us two realities. The first is that we have already, if we have trusted Christ, been reunited to God, but not fully. And there is coming a day when we will be fully reunited to God by His Spirit. Turn if you please, to John 14. We won't take time to read John 14 through 16. As you see the slide in front of you on the screen, this would encourage you perhaps to do some further study on your own, but I want to pick out a few highlighted sections here in these three chapters. Jesus, before he is arrested and crucified, speaks to his disciples words of promise. One of the central themes of these three chapters is that Jesus is going to give them the Holy Spirit. Look with me in verse 15 of chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Look at verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In chapter 16, look with me in verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now... I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the Ruler... The world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, verse 12, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What Jesus is saying to the disciples in this final address before his crucifixion is that he will not leave them alone. He will not abandon them. But he will not just leave them with words of promise, fond memories. Jesus will send the third person of the Godhead, the Spirit of God, to be with us, to be among us, to be in us. And therefore, we can say, That we have already been reunited to God. We have already received the down payment of our inheritance. But we have not yet fully realized it, have we? We still sin, we still treasure inferior things, we still are full of anxiety and stress. There's coming a day, brothers and sisters, with that will no longer be the case. We will be with God in His very presence fully. No more sin. No more sorrow. No more scrambling for peace. No more anxiety about tomorrow. That is coming. That is the fullness of your inheritance. And I want to say to you that it is definite. It is not a maybe. It will come to pass. We don't yet see it with our eyes. We have not yet fully experienced it. In this day and age, and in this life that we now lead, we, we sense frustration and we long for something far better. But because God planned this before the foundation of the world, because he sets you apart for himself in predestination. And because he's already granted you his spirit who communes with you and allows you to commune with God. You can trust him that the fullness of your salvation will indeed come to pass. That all the promises of the gospel will be fulfilled and not a word of one of his promises will fail. By way of application. If you have not yet trusted Christ. If you are yet scrambling to find your own peace and rest. If you are yet working your fingers to the bone. To erect a lifestyle for yourself. To make yourself happy. It is a fool's errand. And I call you to trust Jesus to rest in the one who is the greatest promise of God given to humanity to bring humanity back to himself. I call you to be united to Jesus by faith today. Today is the day of salvation, and I call you to not be hardened and to miss the rest that is promised to you. If you have already staked your claim on Jesus, if you are resting in him, trusting in him, I call you once again to believe the promise of the gospel that you already belong to God that nothing can take that from you that you've been given all you need in the here and now and I call you to fight the trend toward unbelief and pride and lustful idolatry by trusting in the promises of God given in the gospel There is no way you can fight your idolatry unless you believe and meditate upon the gospel. There is no way you can battle against unbelief and pride and doubt unless you understand and meditate upon the gospel. I call you thirdly to apply this to your neighbors around you. Your neighbors who likewise are scrambling for meaning and peace, they don't know They need to know, and you can tell them. Notice in verse 12 that, that there were some who were the first to hope in the gospel. People like Paul. But then others heard verse 13, like these Ephesians, and they believed. Therefore, there is a missional and evangelistic component to this text. You have a responsibility to tell those who don't know or don't understand I think there's also a communal application to this, and with this I will close. If God loved rebels so much that He would sacrifice His beloved, His Son, and if the Father would choose to love us so much that He would grant us His Spirit, that we might be vitally united to Him, this means that God wants people Image bearers to dwell with him in perfect communion. And I think this holds up implications for the way we live together as a church. For all of eternity, the Trinity has existed in perfect harmony. And then God made image bearers for his own glory to dwell with him in harmony. Sin messed that up. Sin separated us from God. And ever since God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and withdrew his physical, if we can say, presence from them, we've all been scrambling to get back to Eden, back to paradise. God made a way. He made a way through his promised son who would come and crush the tempter and bring rebels and make them sons and daughters. And if God went to such great lengths... Sacrificing his greatest treasure to make us sons and daughters, how much more should we live that way toward one another? That is to say, God took care of sin that separated himself from the humans. Therefore, we should live together with that same sort of posture. This means that you must forgive your brother and sister, or your spouse, or your children or your mom, or your dad, every single time. This means that it must be more than just mere forgiveness. It must be a posture of gracious love. A posture, if you will, of welcoming others into your life. This, this does not mean that you will be best friends with everybody here today. That's impossible. It's not logical. It won't work. But this means that if there are people in this gathering today that you don't like to be around, that it's probably just as much a problem with you as it is with them. There's always going to be quirky people in your church family. You might be the quirky one, though you perceive that someone else is. But we must remember that the distance between each other, between quirky, broken, sinful people, is infinitesimal in comparison to the gulf between us and God. And yet the Father bridged that in Christ by making Him a sacrifice of peace and has brought us back with the sealed Holy Spirit because He loves us. And so I call you to purposeful, deliberate, sacrificial, loving communion with each other That is a clear implication of the gospel that we will see more of as we work through the book of Ephesians. And we have a chance to do that today because we're going to gather together and have food. So as we celebrate Thanksgiving together as a church family today, you may not be super thankful, but I call you to be reminded of the great work that has been done on your behalf to make you a child of God. And I call you to be thankful for each other as a clear implication of the gospel, for God has made us His own in perfect communion once again, and we look forward to the day when that will be fully realized. But we've been given a down payment, a foretaste, an appetizer, if you will, of what eternity will be like when we dwell with God for forever, because we can dwell with Him today. We can dwell together, collectively with Him today. So I call you to that. In order that our Father might be praised and treasured, we have been promised an inheritance of rest in Christ and we have been reunited to him in Christ by the Spirit. These are truths which are for your heart. So I call you to understand them in your head. I call you to embrace them in your heart. And I call you to act upon them with your hands, with your feet, by the grace of the Spirit who dwells within you. Let's pray.